I remember it vividly. It was the first day back in January when I was in sixth grade, the first day back into the classroom. We walked into math class. Uh, Mr. Gillette was standing in front of us. We sat down and Mr. Gillette said, well, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, I speak fluent sarcasm, so I was tuned in to what was going on. Mr. Gillette said, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, Christmas is over, and now all we have is winter. This is western New York, three months, gray, cold snow. And then he continued, he said, and if you haven't already figured it out, when you go to gym class, be prepared. It's time for the annual unit of square dancing. Oh, Every child in third to sixth grade at the Perry Elementary School must do square dancing. It happens in the winter months. Nobody likes it. The reason that nobody likes it is because you might actually, in the process of square dancing, have to touch a member of the opposite sex and get cooties. Then Mr. Gillette said, and here in math class, it is time for the chapters in the book about fractions. Fractions. No one likes fractions. New rules, new vocabulary, new procedures, none of them make any sense. You divide one fraction by another by multiplying it by its reciprocal, and you find its reciprocal by switching the numerator and the denominator. Nobody knows what that means. Winter without Christmas, square dancing, fractions. It is not a wonderful time of the year. Well, you might have that sort of reaction when I tell you about what we're going to talk about together for the next few weeks. It's not that I'm not excited about it. I'm very excited to talk about this. But I'm a bit leery about what you're going to think about it. In fact, I haven't been talking about this too much with people. We're going to talk, Lord willing, for the next uh, six weeks about what it means to belong to a church. Six weeks together in the Bible about church membership. Oh, No one's spoken, but I hear the groans on the inside. I can hear them. Some of you are discouraged because you came this morning and you want to talk about something relevant, especially if you're uh, new to our church or uh, new to Christianity, trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Can't we talk about something like useful, practical? Like, can't we talk about parenting or marriage or money or just the... uh, weight that comes around people around this time of year? Can't we talk about something useful? And some of you, I know, I know you're thinking this because I've heard you say it, some of you are thinking that you, we can't possibly talk about membership that long because it's not in the Bible, and we do care about what the Bible says. I want to address all of those objections, all those questions, and all those concerns. I want to do it at one time because I think this is really, really important. In fact, my goal is to help you over the next few weeks. I want you to move from thinking in the category of winter without Christmas, fractions, square dancing, membership. I want to move membership from that category, and I want to put it in a different one. I want you to move from... Um, that I want, I want to think with you about why this matters, why it's important, why it actually matters, uh, why it's a, a crucial topic for our lives together as we follow Christ. I want you to move from, oh, please stop, to tell me more. That's my goal. Is that possible? Well, uh, let me begin by giving you some reasons why we're going to talk about this, all right? Here's why we're going to talk about what it means to belong to a local congregation. Now, I have already alluded to one of these reasons, but here's the first one. 
I want to show you over the next few weeks the biblical roots of church membership, the biblical roots of church membership. Um, I know um, without, argu- without argument, I'm going to grant you that there's nothing explicit in the Bible about membership interviews and about membership lists and congregational meetings or signing doctrinal statements. Um, there's probably more there than you think. Uh, maybe I'll show that to you over the next few weeks. But um, these specific membership policies themselves aren't explicitly the New Testament, but the roots are there. Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, I think that in order for a church to accomplish all that it is supposed to, everything that is explicit, some sort of formal church membership is required. Uh, To put it another way, I don't know of a better way for a congregation to accomplish everything that the New Testament explicitly says we must do. I haven't found a better way of doing all of those things than having some sort of formal church membership. Uh, There may be another way to do it, but in 2,000 years, the church hasn't figured this out yet. Um, If if you're wondering about this, I'm saying, yes, we need church membership in order to do all the things that the New Testament says we need to do. Now, um, let me illustrate this, perhaps. I wonder if you've heard a man by the name of Bradford Wilcox. Bradford Wilcox, if you haven't, he's a handy name to have somewhere in your mind. Bradford Wilcox is a sociologist. He's a a believer. He uh, teaches and works at the University of Virginia. And Bradford Wilcox is a little bit of a contrarian. Um, Not that he's uh, a curmudgeon or he's grouchy, but but, uh, a lot of social scientists, a lot of Bradford Wilcox's peers seem to be reveling in the moral transformation that's taking place in our society And he argues uh, persuasively, cogently, consistently that the evidence supporting some of those claims is claims that uh, were beyond manhood and womanhood and marriage and and, uh, masculinity and femininity. Those claims that were beyond all those things. Bradford Wilcox pushes back all the time and says the arguments you're making are thin and insubstantial. If I were in college and I were writing papers about any issues related to social science, I would want to know what Bradford Wilcox had to say about it. It would be helpful, I think. Well, in recent days, uh, people uh, there's been some conversation, started with a New York Times editorial and something that uh, Prime Minister uh, of Great Britain, David Cameron, said. People have been talking about the need for stability in families. We need stable families. And the argument goes, we need, uh, children need stability because when children are in a stable environment, there's less poverty, they get a better education, they're less inclined to crime. We need stability. And Bradford Wilcox has been on the sidelines saying, you know all those things you're talking about? We don't actually need stability. What you're talking about is marriage. You're just not going to use the word, but we need marriage. Um, Real committed marriage. That's actually how children get real stability. Being raised in a home with a mom and a dad who have the same last name, the same bank account, the same home ownership, and a license that makes it all legal. A man and woman who have exchanged vows and rings. That's the key to all of those things. You have all these values that you want in, a, in society, but you're not willing really to talk about the one thing that will is most likely to lead to them, which is marriage. Well... I want to say the same thing about membership. There's all these things in the New Testament that we talk about, uh, our accountability to one another, discipleship, loving one another, caring for one another, and and all those values. And I'm going to be on the sidelines, and I'm going to say, 
if you really want them, what you need is membership. I'm going to try and make that case for you. Now, second, we're going to talk about membership because I want to answer some of the objections and questions you have about it. Uh, Here's some of them. It's not biblical. Membership is bureaucratic. It's not relational. It's not necessary. It's controlling. It's irrelevant. It's exclusionary. It's just tradition, and we don't need tradition. I want to take on some of those objections in detail as we go through this uh, study. Jonathan Lehman, who's written about this more than I think anybody else alive, said that a lot of the objections that people have to church membership come from the fact that we have poorly formed and sentimental ideas about love and about authority. We love love and we hate authority. Mostly because we haven't thought very well about either one of them. I was watching a clip the other day. It was a, a conversation that was taking place on a talk show and they were joking and one of, them, one of the people on the, on the show said something that I've seen on church signs about uh, if Jesus were on Facebook, Jesus will never unfriend you. <laughs> That's dumb. Uh, not just a saying, but I wonder about the sentiment behind it. Does, does Jesus... How can Jesus be loving and if he, does, does he ever exclude anybody for any reason and why would he do that? And can he be loving and do that? Do we, have we thought well enough about love and authority that, that that might actually be a possibility? Well, we're going to talk about that. Now, third, I want to talk about membership because I want to show you how membership is useful, that it makes a difference in how we relate to one another, that it's not just a, 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 something, a, a starting gate that we've got to get through, but something real and substantive that we live out. Uh, The summer I turned 16, my father took me over to the county seat in Wyoming County, New York, to the city of Warsaw. And we went to the courthouse. That's where you you take your permit tests. And I had studied the book, and I was ready for my permit test so I could get my permit to drive. Uh, It was a test. I passed the test. I can take tests. So I passed the test, and we got back in the car, and we drove a mile and a half down the road, and we pulled in, my father pulled into the parking lot of the volunteer fire department of Warsaw, New York, and he said, well, there's no time like the present, let's drive. So I got out of the passenger seat, I walked over, and I sat down in uh, the wheel, behind the wheel of my parents' Ford Crown Victoria nine-passenger station wagon. So um, looking back at that experience of sitting behind the wheel, there are things that I am surprised that I did not know about operating a vehicle. Some of you will think this is odd. You, you, you uh, grew up on your farm and you've been driving your truck around since you were 12. There, I didn't have that experience or things I didn't know. For example, I did not know that if the car was in park, uh, you didn't need to touch the gas in order for it to move forward. I found that out for the first I uh, had my foot on the brake, and I put it into drive, and I took my foot off the brake, and I expected to sit there, and it moved. Even the SS Crown Victoria moves when it's in drive. I didn't know that your turn signal goes off automatically. I didn't know that it was, it was tied to the, the steering wheel. And, it goes, and When I found that out, I thought to myself, why does my grandfather always have his on then? I, just, I was confused about that, if it goes off automatically. I didn't know how hard it was to keep that massive ship made by Ford in the, in the lane. Like, I didn't know. 
we got some, my family invested in Dramamine when I started to drive. I didn't know how hard that was at first. None of the questions on the driver's test prepared me for any of those things. There was no question at all on the driver's test about when the turn signal goes off or about how the car moves and drives and how difficult a skill it is to learn to keep the car going straight. That was not on the test at all, but the test certified me to drive. The process of church membership is not like your permit test. It's not a hoop you jump through so that you can get the keys to the Christian life and then learn how it really works. If we really understand membership and we really work it out the way it's supposed to, you'll see how it is vitally connected to how we actually live and how we relate to one another as believers. I want to show you that in the weeks that are to come. All right, now, today what I want to do is I want to take on the objection that church membership is exclusionary, that it is exclusion, that it is a top-down Uh, uh, imposed on people practice that unnecessarily cuts people off from the church and from the grace of God. That that church membership takes the grace of God that's supposed to be free and and shared broadly and hoards it or cuts people off from it. That, That church membership makes the church like a country club where you have to meet all kinds of standards in order to get in. Have you ever heard anybody say that it shouldn't be harder to get into a church than it should be to get into heaven? Have you ever heard anybody say that? And and the doors are barred and guarded by self-important committees of self-appointed snobs. Hmm. Now, the way that I want to address that objection is I want to show you that God himself is the one who calls out and separates his people. That's what God does. One way to view church membership is to see it as a reflection of the work that God has already done in calling out and separating his people. I want to show you that from the Bible, and I want to answer the question, actually, why God does that. In fact, um, I'm going to tell you that up front, and then we're going to move through several passages where I want to show you this. It's not the way we usually work through the Bible, but here's all the answers. I'm going to tell them to you, and then I'm going to show them to you in the Scripture. Why does God call out and separate his people? Simple reasons. He does it for his glory and for their good. For his glory and their good. Church membership is, is a response to a reflection of the work that God has already done in calling out and separating his people, which he does for his glory and their good. Now, let's look at a few passages, and we're going to do this from the Old Testament primarily this morning. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start right here at the beginning of Genesis in chapter 12. And uh, we're going to look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, it's crucial for your understanding of the Old Testament. And it is a passage that we looked at most recently, a few weeks ago, even in Sunday school. So Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God is calling out and separating his own people for his glory and their good. Let's see, Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the story of how God called Abram and his family. He called them out of the place where they were living, and the culture in which they lived, and he promised to make them their own nation. That's an odd word to be used here. 
Usually in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, the word nation refers to people who are not Jews, um, Gentiles. But here, God is using it of, of Abraham to say, of your family, Abraham, I'm going to make them their own, this is what a nation is, their own unit, their own identifiable political social sphere that is unique. Abram, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to separate you and make you into a nation. God calls him out, he separates him. Verse 3, God makes distinctions here even more. He separates. I'm going to bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. God makes a distinction here. He separates. He separates people based on how they treat Abram. Now, why does he do it? Clearly in the passage, he does it for Abram's good, doesn't he? (laughs) This is very good for Abram. I'm going to bless you. (laughs) Um, But it's not just actually for Abram here, but for everyone else. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not the specific ones who are involved in cursing Abram and his family, but there's, there's blessing here, abundant blessing. You should think about this. When you think about exclusion and separation, recognize in this passage here that God's plan to bless the world with grace, his plan to cover the earth with his grace like the waters cover the sea, begins with this act of separation and exclusion. Is it possible that one of the ways that our congregation best can testify to the magnanimous, amazing grace of God is by separation? How could that be? Uh, It's something that we'll need to think about, but it should change how you think about this exclusivistic thing in the Bible. Now, there's a couple things that we should notice, too, as the story of Genesis continues here. There, there is no specific statement in this passage about God's glory. We'll come to a passage like that in a few minutes. Uh, but that's, this is clearly God's work and God's plan. He says, I will make you, verse 2, I will make you to great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you. This is God is at work very clearly in doing this. And to think, help us think even more about this separation and how God does it, turn with me over to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, the second passage that we want to look at this morning. Uh, there's, in Genesis 17, these same promises that are made to Abraham. We won't, uh, Abram, we won't re- read them again. But here there is given a separating mark God gives to his people. He further separates them bodily. Look at verse 9. All right, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, 9, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household, are bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Circumcision is a separating mark. Now, is there a separating mark for Christians too? Is there something that God does in the New Testament that separates us out? Clearly, when we read the New Testament, it's not circumcision. Paul 
It's pretty clear about that in the book of Galatians. It's not circumcision. I would like to make the argument that it actually, I think you could, that it's baptism. Baptism is what is the clear separating mark of followers of Jesus. You circumcise babies in the Old Testament and you baptize believers in the New Testament. Now, what happens if you refuse to be circumcised? Uh, Verse 13, well, I already read that. That's not where I want to look. Um, ah, Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his... There's an intentional pun there. Will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now notice here the passage is filled with covenant language. The idea of having a church covenant is not an extra biblical idea. Now why circumcision? Why this sign? Well, there's debate about this. We're not exactly sure, but I can think of two reasons that might come into play. First of all, remember that the promise that God made to Abraham is related to descendants, and there is a relationship between descendants, children, and circumcision. We won't go into those details now. The second thing, though, is that in this culture, in this culture in which this law was given, and during much of the time of the Bible, uh, religious practices not related to the God of the Bible, but related to other pagan gods, idolatry, was very highly sexualized. And if a Jew was committing idolatry and he went to a pagan temple to worship and he disrobed in the process of it, everyone would be able to see that he's actually been claimed and marked out and separated to another god. Same thing would happen, one would imagine, in Roman gymnasiums where they exercise and compete with one another in the nude. It would be clear whose you are in those environments. God calls out and separates his people. This is exclusionary, it's exclusive, and it's God's idea. And it is the way in which he's going to manifest and show his grace. He draws this line between those who are his and those who are not his. And you actually should be grateful that God draws lines like this. You, you believe in separation. You believe in exclusivity. Um, whether you acknowledge it or not, you believe in it and appreciate it. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, a few months ago, we started locking the door at the end of the north hallway during the services. So there's one of our ushers, sometimes it's Larry Sexton, they go down and they lock that door at the end of the hall. And uh, we do it during the services and we unlock it after the services. And the reason that we lock that door is because we don't want to have easy access from that end of the building to the nursery. We want, if somebody's going to come into the, the building, we want them to have to come through the foyer where there's an awful lot of foot traffic during services. We lock the doors. That's very exclusionary. It's very separatistic. Actually, when you go, if you were to drop off your baby in the nursery, you've got to fill out paperwork. You've got to get tags. You've got to, you've got to say who's allowed to come and pick up your child. You have to give blood. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Um, we, but but uh, we, we do all these things. We do all these things for the sake of safety because there are people in the world who are predatory, who mean to do harm, and we want them to be separated from the most vulnerable people in our church. So anybody who's not in favor of that sort of separation? Hmm. We like separation. 
Now, here's the rub. Here's the rub. Some of you are thinking about this. You're processing this. This is working in your mind. What I'm saying by using that illustration, I am indicating to you my belief, and I think the Bible teaches this, that there is a distinction. There is a distinction, first and foremost, importantly, between human beings and God. Not not just the separation between us as, as creatures and Him as our Creator, but one between goodness and evil. We were originally made to walk with God in wholeness, to share in his moral goodness. There were no predatory human beings in the world that God made. There were no locks in the Garden of Eden at all. But we all together, first in the Garden of Eden, and now human beings as a whole, we have taken our stand against God. We're in a condition of rebellion against Him. This is our natural state. He is our enemy. He's our enemy because we are predators. We don't care who we hurt or what we do. We want things our own way. One of the, reasons, one of the signs that you can tell that you're a maturing person is you begin to recognize and see how destructive your self-centeredness is. Babies are self-centered, aren't they? We have poor, poor servants right now serving in the nursery with the nastiest group of people in the building, right? They're just so self-centered. It's a good thing they're as weak as they are because they would tear people apart if they couldn't, right? They could. You know this. You hold your baby. Your baby gets angry at you. Sometimes you think, if you were 6'3 and weighed 250, I'd be dead right now, right? Hmm. They don't care. So they're so self-centered, these little babies. And then you've got to teach them how to share. They live in the worlds where sharing is the most unreasonable thing that they would ever do. The Bible calls this self-centeredness sin, and it puts us at enmity with God. There is a distinction between us and God, all of us. But God, see, in His kindness... As part of the way that he wants to show his grace to everyone, he calls people out to himself and he separates them to himself for their good and his glory. How, how does God call people out? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But when you see the moral distinction that exists here and God's kindness to those who are his enemies that he calls to himself, you begin to recognize that when we think about church membership, we're not talking about country clubs. Instead, we're talking about lifeboats or maybe um, being on the beach and not in the water. Maybe it's my own memory fault. I don't know. But weren't there a lot of sharks around this summer? There's reports all over the place about that. Some of you, um, maybe you were at the beach when it was closed because of shark sightings. Um, Church membership is like this. God calls people out of shark-infested waters to the shore. Naturally, they don't realize what kind of danger they're in. There they are, they're uh, 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 having chicken fights or they're body surfing or they're playing in the waves, but there's sharks in the water. And God's call, we echo this call too. Every Sunday we meet, we call, come out of the water, get out of the water. It's dangerous, there's danger in there. And either you're in or you're out, you're wet or you're dry, you're safe or you're not safe. Come out. How, do God, how does God call his people out? Well, again, we'll come to that in a minute. God calls his people out and he separates them for his glory and their good. Let's look at another passage, shall we? Flip with me over to Exodus chapter 19. 
Exodus chapter 19. Turn or scroll to Exodus 19, and we're going to look at another passage where God calls out and separates his people. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the first day, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, obviously Abram's family has grown quite a bit. They have a new name. They've, God's rescuing them from Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God calling out his people. And they are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation distinct from all the other nations on the earth. This is, again, for their good. It's a privilege to be a priest to represent God to the world. This special relationship is here because God carried them on eagles' wings, called out, separated for their own good. Now what follows is interesting, you know this I'm sure, if you keep going in the pages of your Bible, what you find are chapters and chapters of laws, rules, regulations. The Ten Commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Why is that 600 laws? Why did he give them all these laws? for His glory and for their good. I bet this is your greatest struggle as a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Your greatest struggle as a follower of Jesus Christ is to believe that when God gives us a command, when He tells us to do something, that it actually will work out for our good if we obey it. Isn't that your biggest struggle? That, that when God tells us... We, human beings have been falling for this for a long time. Eve in the garden, was convinced by the serpent that God's rules were meant to hold her down, to suppress her, to keep her from being truly happy. And that's, we believe this. God's holding out on me. God is holding out on me by commanding me to not steal or to commanding me to run from sexual morality, by commanding me to be careful with the resources that he has given me, um, by commanding me to love my wife or respect my husband or honor my father and mother. God's holding out on me by giving me all these onerous rules. God doesn't hold out on his people, though. We have more passages to look at, a couple of them. Let's go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7. We were just there in a, few, a few minutes ago, right? We're going to keep going. Uh, Pastor Scott read from Deuteronomy 7 a few minutes ago. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is where we are. And we're not going to read the whole thing again, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, we have another statement about God speaking to the Israelites about what he did for them, calling them out and distinguishing them from the other nations. Actually, you see some of that separation happening in verse 3. Look at it. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Um, The Bible here in this passage is not concerned with ethnic purity. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. There is not a whiff of uh, anything in the Bible that would justify racism. Nothing like that at all in the Bible. In fact, there's much in the Bible that uh, uh, would, would push back against racism. 
The concern here in verse 3 is not with ethnic purity, but with religious purity. Verse 4, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will do quickly and will quickly destroy you. That's the issue. It's not ethnic purity, it's spiritual purity. Keep that in mind. That's good. Now, look down here at verse verse 8. Oh, let's start at verse 7. Why did God call the Israelites out and separate him, them for himself? Verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the hand of, land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Why did God call out the Israelites? He did it so that the whole world, by his work with them, would see that God is loving, faithful, and just. He does it for his own glory for his own sake that's the old testament is there anything in the new testament that would indicate that this is true that god calls out and separates to himself his people well i'm glad you asked the question yes turn with me in the old testament to first peter first peter we're going to go out of canonical order a little bit so go all the way to the back um, if you're in the book of Revelation, or if you see a map, or good for you, or if you're uh, in the book of Concordance, okay, turn left, all right? Turn left, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, is, I want to read this. Actually, this should sound very familiar to you. God calls out and separates his people in the Old Testament. God calls out and separates his people in the New Testament. Verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is such good news. When we gather together on Sunday mornings as followers of Jesus Christ and we come in with the same commitment to the Lord Jesus, it is true of us. We were not a people, but now we are a people. We're God's people. We're a holy nation. We're his, his treasured possession. Oh, that's such good news. Now, now, the separation actually continues a little bit more here, even in this passage. Verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's separation here. Separation even from your own desires that are warring against you. Live such good lives among the pagans that, they may, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Why does God call out and separate his people? He calls out and separates his people for our good because you have desires that are waging war on your soul. And he calls us out and separates us for his glory. Someday God is going to get the glory as um, the wisdom of his people and following him faithfully is made manifest in that day to come. Hmm. Now, one more passage that I want to look at here. It's long. It's familiar. It's good. Ephesians. Turn back with me to the left. To Ephesians chapter 2. 
We see almost everything that we've talked about come together here in these 10 verses that we read almost every time we have a baptism service. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's talk about this again. God calling us out, God separating his people for his glory, for their good. Look at this, Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, separated from God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here they all are, all the things we've been talking about. God called us out from what? From death, from being his enemies, objects of his wrath. He, he separated us from all those deadly forces, cravings, desires, rulers, called out for our own good, for our salvation. He rescued us from what? God's wrath. We were saved from God's wrath. It's not sharks in the water that threaten the soul. It's God's wrath that he saves us from. Called out for his glory because in the coming ages, God's going to pl- unfold his incomparable grace and we'll see more and more and more and more of How does God call people out? Well, the gospel is how he does it now. Because of his great mercy, he sent his son. He, he sent his son to be our sin bearer. He offered himself for us on the cross in our dead, damnable state into our broken world, the Savior came. He died on the cross as our substitute, and He rose again. And all who believe, everyone who believes, the text says this, those, uh, you're saved by grace through faith. All who believe will come, will, are, are called out and separated. They receive forgiveness and life. God calls out His own and He separates them for their good and His glory. Church membership is more than this. It is more than this. But it is at least our effort to recognize that this is what God does. That there are those around us who are like us, who are called out ones. They have been called out and and they have believed. And it's a a reflection and a response to God's grace. If, If you are called out like this, you should be a part of us. Not because we're in the country club. But we're on the shore. Now, one more indication, one more implication, I think, of the idea that God calls out and separates his own people uh, that I want to mention before we finish for just a couple of minutes. I think this concept of God calling us out and separating us to himself actually shapes 
what we do, actually why we do what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Our meetings on Sunday mornings are gatherings of God's people. Um, this is, this is for this, the purpose of the meeting is for us to think together about more carefully worship and to think more carefully about the implications of what it means to be God's called out and separated people. And by that regard, our meetings are more like a family reunion than a recruitment seminar. Um, has any, ever, anybody ever invited you to an Amway presentation? Uh. They want to sell you things, right? But they want to recruit you even more, more importantly so, so that you become a salesman too. So those meetings are much different than a family reunion. The last time we had a family reunion, it was wonderful. It was on the 4th of July here in Lancaster. Uh, there was a guest at our family reunion. Have, do you have guests at your family reunion? We call guests things that, that, that come to our... Uh, girlfriend is who she was. She was my cousin's son's girlfriend he brought a girlfriend to a family my family reunion that's a bold move um coming to to someone else's family reunion as a guest right um she was welcome she was very we were happy she was there she uh we introduced ourselves to her we invited to join us for the day uh some of us were wondering when we met her i wonder if she's here because she's a potential recruit you know we had that thought you know how you get recruited into the family right she going to be on Team Divinity? She was there, and she was welcome to be there, but the reunion never became about her. It was a family meeting. Uh, she could come and see what we were like, and maybe it would help her know whether she wanted to join, but we were there as Divinities to do Divinity things, talk about Divinity events and tell Divinity stories and compete for the Divinity Cornhole Championship trophy. My wife and I came in second. We gather together on Sunday mornings where God's called out ones as Christians, those he has invited out of darkness into his light. You're welcome to come if you're not part of us, but we want you to join. Join us as, as, we, as Christians gather to do Christian things. We read the Bible and we sing and we pray and we give and we talk as Christian people, God's called out and separated people. Join us on the shore. God calls out and separates his people. He does it for his own glory and for our own good. And we follow him by joining together as members of the congregation. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, great God, this is an unusual, an unusual way, it seems, to you, uh, for you to magnify your grace to call all peoples to blessing. It's, it seems odd that you would do it by separating people for yourself, but it's part of your good plan. Oh, teach us, Lord, in the weeks that are to come to um, not just understand it, but receive it with joy and recognize its benefit and usefulness. Oh, Lord, we do as a congregation, we want to be people who magnify your grace and are, are part of this grand plan of blessing the peoples of the world. We, we want to we be a, a part of that. Teach us how best to do it as we seek to care for and love one another. You are a good God, and you do good to and for and in your people. Do it through us as well, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.